The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. I'm Simon Reynolds and I'm in an imaginary airport business lounge with the world's most successful people waiting for their flight. Business people have to travel and sometimes delays happen and we can take advantage of that. You get to hear 45 minutes of one guest in conversation before their flight boards. You'll hear their stories, the triumphs, the challenges and the lessons they've learned along the way. Welcome to the Business Lounge. Paging Jack Cowan to the Disrupt Radio Business Lounge. Jack Cowan. The Business Lounge. You should not become a franchisee unless and pay people royalty and fees and this and that. Unless there's some evidence that the idea works. The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. Today in the Business Lounge, we have one of the greatest entrepreneurs this country has ever produced. Originally from Canada, our guest has spent almost his whole life living here in Australia, building numerous large businesses and now worth billions, with over 400 Hungry Jack's restaurants and hundreds of Domino's stores, and making a hugely positive contribution to this country. He's also an excellent example that being highly successful in business doesn't mean you can't be a gentleman as well. We're talking to one of the greats, Jack Cowan. Welcome to the Business Lounge. Thank you. Good to be here. Great to have you. Now, before you open the businesses from which you've become justly famous for, you were doing a whole lot of different jobs, including, I heard, door-to-door selling. What was that like? Uh, That was probably the greatest education I ever had. I did this when I was going through university as a summer job. I had this job selling trees and shrubs and plants and things like this, farm to farm, so that I earned enough in summer to buy myself a sports car and pay my my tuition at university. But it was a it was a great experience because there is no better learning experience than when you knock on someone's door. There's an automatic response that you get. No, we don't want any. That's the that's the customer's automatic response, and then. When you know that in your head, no, I don't want any, that's when the sales pitch has to start and you have to find an opening somehow to try and create some interest. And learning that, learning that kind of uh, technique, as I say, was a great education in learning how to somehow try and get people to think the same way you do. And you know, in the, in the case of selling the shrubs, buy some trees, things like that. So it's great. I loved it. And also handling rejection as well. Well, that's part of it. As I say, you, you're, you're expecting the, re, the, the rejection. You know, if you've got a shop, somebody comes in, they may look around and they're not buying and walk out again. In this case, you know there's going to be a rejection. Nobody doesn't answer the door and say, oh, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> no, but well, how much can I buy? That doesn't So rejection is part of the process. Learning that is pretty important. Yeah, yeah, 100%. In fact, I see so many business owners who have got quite good products or, or, or services, but you ask them, how they get their business and they just say, oh, referral. In other words, they're not doing a thing to go out and get business. And it's it's just an endemic problem, I think. But I enjoyed it. And I think, um, you know, one of the great things about direct sales where, where, you know, you don't have to be with the company for 25 years, you know, kind of like week one, if you're in selling, you got a measuring stick and you're either good, you're average or you're, you're not so good. And that measuring, so you don't have to wait for the gold watch after, you know, 30 years of faithful service. 
you know what your contribution level was. And the fact that I had done that, which enabled me to, I got a job with a big insurance company in Canada where I grew up and the, um, the, the, the big financial business. So they put me into sales because I'd done what we just finished talking about. And uh, I did really well in the insurance business selling as well. And that enabled me as a 25 year old to create an image with people with money to back me when I moved to Australia. They said, if this guy can do this, he can sell this, he can probably sell other things. And I had 30 people lend me 10 grand each, 300,000, probably the 10 grand today is probably a hundred. So I give a little speech when I travel around, I say, if a 25 year old kid comes into your office, wants to go into a business halfway around the world, he's got no experience, he's got no collateral, not going to pay you any interest. He's going to give you one and a half percent of interest in the business for your $10,000. How long before you throw them out yeah. um, or wasting your time? And the reality is, um, you know, there are people out there that are prepared to back people with an idea, which is what I had at that stage of game of moving from Canada to Australia to set up a business. And they backed me. And otherwise, I'd be shoveling snow somewhere in Canada today, bro. Yeah, and, and, and it's incredible because even now, for someone to do that, to move from Canada to Perth, I think it was, wasn't it? That was, yeah. yeah is, uh, that's absolutely extraordinary. But back then, it's like saying you want to move to the moon. Um, I mean, what prompted you to choose Australia? Um, well, it's funny you talked about the moon. My mother-in-law said that to me when she said, you know how far from where we lived in Canada, you know, the only place you go further away was the moon. <laughs> so that, 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 that was a very uh, cutting sort of uh, position that she wasn't that happy about me taking her daughter halfway around the world to, you know, who knows what. So how did, how did I end up in Australia? My, my father spent his whole life working for the Ford Motor Company. In 1960, I'm in high school, and uh, he got sent to Geelong, Australia, in Victoria, with 20 other Canadians to build an engine plant. And as you go into Geelong, the big Ford, so they built an engine plant, and they were there for six months. The wives came for three weeks in the middle, but it was six months. Anyway, he came back and he said to me, if I was young again, I'd move to Australia. This is 1960, 1960. And uh, he said, it's the land of the future. Asia will continue to grow and prosper. Uh, and Australia will be kind of the farm and the quarry and all these things to feed Asia. And so he said, great opportunity. So anyway, I, I was kind of predestined. I'm in high school on this. And so I was predestined to want to want to visit Australia. And then um, I finished university, get a job. And I got a call one day from two guys I'd gone through high school with that had taken a job with the American Kentucky Fried Chicken Company. They'd been sent to Australia to do market research. And uh, since I was the only guy in, in our class that knew where Australia was on the map because my old man had been there, uh, they called me up and said, hey, everything you like in life is here. You should come. So without a moment's hesitation, I'm on a plane. Wow. Flying to Sydney for three weeks, February 1968. Got involved in doing the market research, and I tell the story that, you know, one Sunday night during that three-week period, you know, these friends had a party, went to a Chinese restaurant, 50 people standing around with a little ticket in their hand waiting for the Chinese food to be written. And so you didn't have to be Albert Einstein to say there's a business opportunity if you can produce food faster, 
Yeah. And, and, you know, with a limited sort of menu, how do you do this? So, and I, I'd grown up in Canada, I'd seen the McDonald's and the KFCs and the Burger King prosper. And in 1968, in Australia, the food service business consisted of Chinese restaurants, fish and chip shops, and fancy white tablecloth restaurants. There was no kind of food service industry as we know it today. Mm -hmm. So I saw this, I was able to see, ah, here's an opportunity. So I paid a thousand dollar deposit on a franchise area in what turned out to be in Perth and went back to Canada and kind of, you know, continued on the life. And I got a phone call one day and said, you're going to lose your thousand dollars if you don't do something about, you know, actioning this thousand dollars was a fair amount of my worldly net worth. I had a wife, six month old child, a mortgage, you know, the whole, whole catastrophe as a 25 year old. So that's, I then got on my bike and got these, 30 people provided me with the capital to move to Perth, got into the KFC business, which we later sold, got into the Hungry Jack's business, got into the Domino's pizza business, got into the food manufacturing business, and kind of, it's been an adventure, really, of, of trying to look for opportunities and how you build a business, build a team of people, you know, that, that uh, because as the business grows, you know, whatever energy you may have had, you got to kind of transmit that back through the organization with other people with the same level of motivation to want to build something. So that that's what that that was the that was the plan, and that's what's evolved. And I'm still doing it. And the secret of success, Simon, you got to live long enough. You know, if you live long enough, that was that was like 50 plus years ago. So if you live fifty, if you live fifty years, and you kind of compound your money at a certain rate, you know you, you got a good chance of being successful. You got to live long. That's the secret. Good advice. I'm going to take that on board. There's no doubt about that. Um, but you know, when you, when you look at it, the heart of uh, a big part of your success was convincing those uh, people to invest in you. Yeah. And you have also. In, in the course of your career, invested in many other successful businesses. So you've been yeah. pitched to or you've pitched quite a lot. What do you think the secret is for, the, for people listening in who one day want to present an idea to, a, to an investor? Why do investors buy, in your opinion? Well, first of all, you need an idea, you know, and uh, for every good idea, there's two ways to make money, Okay. One is you get creative and you come up with an idea that works. Unfortunately, 99 out of every new idea is there's something you hadn't thought about and it doesn't work. Yeah. The other, the other kind of, the other kind of way to make money, which is kind of the path I went down was finding a good idea that works and then being able to transplant it into another environment where it will grow. So it's already a proven idea. You're not, you're not kind of rolling the dice. But you're taking an idea, finding a new environment. So in my case, you know, we established association with successful international companies and said, hey, uh, what have you got in Australia? Nothing. Okay, let us try and build this business for you. Mm. You know, that was the case in KFC and the case in Hungry Jacks. Domino's exactly the same. So I don't think I've got a creative bone in my body, but I do have a radar system that if you see something that's successful, Hey, I wonder what I wonder whether that works someplace else. So that's a, I think how, how how it evolves. So if I'm if I'm trying to pitch somebody, one, you need a good idea that you've either either thought of yourself, or secondly, you've got some history of that idea working someplace else that you can transplant mm-hmm. and make it work. But you need an idea, and then what 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 in 
if, if you're selling to the investor, you have to have some degree of certainty as to why this is going to work. People don't like just rolling the dice. You know, they, they like to have some background as to what, where's some evidence that this airplane is going to get off the runway. We've got, we built this beautiful plane, but if we can't get it up in the air, it's been a bit of a waste of time. So what evidence we got that this idea will work? What about the person themselves, though? There must have been times when you've been pitched to, the idea was good, the evidence was good, but the person themselves uh, didn't really uh, uh, grab you. How, might, how important is that in the factor? I think um, in our particular case, I'm thinking about you know how I react to this. We generally, if we're going to make an investment, we like to have something that's synergistic to what we already do. So just having something that we know nothing about and uh, because somebody's there selling an idea, that's a tougher sell or a more difficult thing to, as an investor to accept because you haven't got any real grounds to be able to assess the reality of what this might mean. So in our case, uh, we, we like, you know, for example, you know, we're in the hamburger business, so we developed a business that, that, that processes meat and you know, we distribute to 27 countries, you know, uh, meat products. Uh, and, but that was de- directly associated, gave us a benefit to make us more competitive in the marketplace from a costing point of view. So what's synergistic to what, 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 what you want to do? So I just say, I, I'm saying, uh, you know, if I'm on the receiving, if I'm on the selling end, I got to see why, why does this make sense for that particular individual to invest in this company? So franchising was all a rage then, yeah. still popular, but uh, arguably it was, it was hotter, 60s, 70s, and 80s. How do you feel about franchising as a business model now for someone just entering uh, business? Do you think it, it still stacks up? Well, franchising is a wonderful business in that for the franchisor, he's using somebody else's money and somebody else's energy. So it's what they call asset light. You know, you don't have to put your own money in. Mm. Mm. Our, my kind of view on franchising is you should not become a franchisee unless and pay people royalty and fees and this and that, unless there's some evidence that the idea works. Mm. You know, there are a lot of people that go around trying to sell an idea um, because they, they it's, it's been successful here. Now we'll, we'll sell it to you. We'll make a fee. I think the franchisor to deserve his fees should be in a position whereby he's got some evidence that he knows it's going to work. Yeah. We were very early in the piece. We made a lot of mistakes. If we were to do that today, we'd probably go broke with some of the mistakes we made. But since we were in early, like in, in the seventies, we went from one market to another market, different suppliers, different this and that. Today, the business that, that we're in is, is, is so competitive. You couldn't afford to do that. Right. But franchising, if, there, if there's, if there's a, a solid business case, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a great idea, both from a franchisee to go into a business that he may not know anything about, but take advantage of other people's learning and experience and what not to do. Uh, that's, that's why you pay the fees. That's why you pay the royalty. You're trying to take advantage of somebody else's experience uh, and then translate that into your particular franchise business. So from a franchisee point of view, it's good in that uh, you make it into a business that you're taking advantage of somebody else's experience. From a franchisor's point of view, it's good because it's asset light. You know, you're using other people's capital and other people's energy. So 
No, I, 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 I'm, I'm a strong proponent that even though the, the, the Domino's business is largely franchised, uh, the Hungry Jack's business is, is 80-20 company. So they're quite different models. And you have to try and figure out how to make them work. Yeah. Now, one thing in franchising I've always been surprised at is in the States, you have a lot of what I call super franchisees, or I think the term is area developers, where someone will own two or 300 Wendy's or whatever. And you see a lot of that, but you don't see much of it in, in Australia. Do you think that whole area developer model is, is underappreciated here? Well, Subway do that. So, you know, Subway are, are, are a large international food service business, and they have area developers, and the, the area developer goes, finds the site, finds the operator, and then somebody else comes in and operates that, and he gets 2 or 3%. I think you know they've they've built they've built a business with twelve hundred stores in Australia following that model. Interestingly enough, you may have read that Subway's recently been bought by 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 another company, and they're in the midst of trying to dismantle that system now because the the developer no longer is as relevant as how do we operate these stores ourselves and make the the higher margin than just the fee. So there's nothing wrong with that, as as I say. Uh, Subway are probably the biggest kind of uh, developer that have gone down following that road. And having done uh, Hungry Jacks, you then moved into Domino's. And we look at Domino's now, phenomenal business, multiple countries now that you're in. And would you guys own more Domino stores than anyone else in the world? Yes, it's a lot. The Australian company is in 12 different, 12 different countries, 3,800 outlets. It's the largest Domino's franchisee in the world by a fair margin. Yeah, right. And I remember, and I think people need to appreciate this, what Domino's was like in Australia before you got involved. And it was, from an outsider's perspective, it was a pretty weak oper- operation. I mean, it wasn't, no one would have said this is going to dominate Pizza Hut like, like it has. What did you have to do to make Domino's work? Well, interestingly, that you, you, you can reflect back on that. The Domino's have gone broke three times wow. in Australia with three different franchise groups. This is in the this is in the early 1990s. Uh, I had made an investment in in a four store home delivery pizza business in Brisbane called Silvio's Dial of Pizza, and uh, I did that because I was interested in trying to learn something about the home delivery business because I saw that as being the future. Today, 70% of business goes through the drive-through. You know, you put your arm out the window. And that, they do that because that's convenience. What's more convenient than that? Somebody ringing your doorbell and delivering it to you. So I saw convenience increasing in, in, uh, in importance and the home delivery business being kind of the, where, where that's going to go. Um, we struggled through the ninth, through the, you know, the 80, we, we built up in Brisbane and, came into Sydney. We had about 100 stores. Domino's had a similar number, and uh, we were we were both really doing it tough and probably had many reasons why we should have packed it in and said enough's enough, just too hard. Mm. And uh, we, and at that stage, you mentioned Pizza Hut. They were the market leaders. They, you know, they, they had a very strong, they had 500-odd stores. Today, it's like 250, so they've really shrunk. Wow. And we put the Domino's failed business and our struggling business together 
thinking we're so smart we're going to have two losing businesses and make one success you know not, not you know, a long stretch of, of logic there that i'm not quite sure that it, that it was going to work and we we did it because we thought we're going nowhere fast we'll at least have an international brand we'll see what we can we can develop out of this um there was a a pizza a school teacher part-time delivery man uh, out, of, out of the Silvio's business that became a franchisee. And his store was doing, his. he ended up with 16 stores, but they were doing double what the rest of our business was. So we, we made him the president of, of this combined business. And um, basically we bought out some other franchisees who came in and guys that knew the business, knew what had to be done. Uh, they developed what they call a high volume mentality. How do you take the sales up? What do you have to do? Company went public in uh, 2000. We made a million dollars EBITDA, which before interest and everything was very little in 2001. 2005, it went public at $2.20. And today it's over $50. So it's growing 25 times in, well, what, uh, 2000. I said, yeah, so 18 years. Incredible. Then the expansion was then, then, then bought France. There's a thousand stores today in Japan, Taiwan, Malaysia, Singapore, Cambodia, Germany, uh, France, Holland, Belgium. The challenge today is how do, you, how do you run a business like that with different languages, different sort of mindsets and things like that? So uh, not easy. Not easy to try and Put all those different things with different economies, different things going on. But it's uh, the business. The business continues to grow. Yeah, phenomenally. And have you reached the point where parent office in the U.S. of Domino's are looking for new countries for you guys to take over because you're you're so efficient, you're so superb, or are they scared about your growing dominance? Well, that's that's an interesting thought. The answer to the first bit was yes. We just took on Singapore, Malaysia and Cambodia in the last six months. And prior to that, six months earlier, we bought Taiwan. So they they see the benefit of, of being able to know how to run these businesses properly. And so they're, but on the other hand, um, one of, if you get too big, one of the, one of the, fears that just not dominoes, but often the franchisor has is, does the franchisee become the tail wagging the dog? One one of the things that we've talked about is, you know, should you, you know, should we do other corporate things? But they they like being the franchisor. They like us paying fees to them, and so they you know they they haven't been quite as adventuresome in their thought process and what we have. But who knows? That may change going forward. Yeah. Now I presume the teacher you're talking about who uh, opened up the 16 stores and then ended up running it is is Don Mage. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yes. Year after year. I was just uh, uh, amazed at how he looked at new ways to create value out of such an elementary business, you know, a, 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 a crust with, with some toppings on it and then whatever else yeah. you want to sell. What makes him so good? How's he been able to do it? it it's got to be, obviously, he's got an incredible worth, work ethic, but he must be quite lateral in how he looks at, at businesses as well. Well, I, I think, you know, to put it in its simplest form, I uh, used the term a minute ago, high volume mentality. Uh, in any business like this, sales really dictate how successful you're going to be. You have to figure out 
how you're going to make more, how you take the revenue up. If you take the revenue up, then the profit hopefully will follow. Mm-hmm. If you try to make profit too soon, you put a cap on top of the sales, you don't make it. So he did a very good job of, of saying, okay, where's the friction points in? And, and kind of it came down to you're in the home delivery business. Uh, how do we get how do we get something to you in 20 minutes, not 30 minutes, not an hour and things like this, which often so that became, you know, how do you how do you focus on maximizing and and, and so how you do that, you reduce the delivery areas. When we started, you know, somebody had somebody an hour away, you know, heard the pizza, the guy be out there. Takes a half hour to get there, half hour to get back. You're paying labor. If you shrink that delivery area to two kilometers, you can you can get three and four d- deliveries in an hour. So you make productivity, customers happy, the service is better. And that that's that's an example of how do you take the fr- what's the friction points in the business that's not enabling you to maximize the revenue, the sales. Yeah, because that's the secret. How do you get sales up? Mm. And if you get sales up, then uh, people, you know, the, the, the return on investment increases. People get more anxious to invest, so on. The Business Lounge. We're back and we're here with Jack Cowan. Obviously, the expanse of, of your business uh, empires is, is so large now. Are you of the, let's say, Warren Buffett school where basically the CEO reports and and other than that, you're you're not going to interfere, or, or do you tend to be more hands-on? Well, I think that, that that's a, that's an interesting subject. Uh, when you know you, you were following the Qantas saga, you know uh, what's the CEO role and what does the what does the chairman do? And in good times, uh, you know the management runs, and if they're, if they're putting runs on the board, you know you kind of let, let let them go because you want want this all to continue to, to flow on. One of the interesting things in the Domino's example was when COVID appeared, uh, Domino's in many ways, the home delivery business grew exponentially because people couldn't get out. They liked having things brought to their house and didn't have to get exposure. Mm -hmm. And the business boomed. When it stopped, all of a sudden there was a correction. And one of the things that happens when when you do that is sometimes you have to reshape the business because as you built this thing brick by brick by brick, when sales come off because COVID no longer applies, then how do you dismantle some of that? Mm. So as a, as a chairman, uh, you, you know, you have to be able to say, uh, where are we in this mix of, um, because, Taking Don as an example, he would he would he would describe himself as he, he's the CEO. He calls himself the chief enthusiasm officer, <laughs> and they 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 have a very optimistic sort of view on life. And the guys like that; they're builders. And when 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 all of a sudden you get a correction, then all of a sudden you got to make some harder decisions of dismantling some of the costs and things like that have been been that. So I think the role of the chairman is to try and say, where are we in this balancing act? Uh, you know, uh, how do we how do we bring things back? Because the optimists um, sometimes guys that built the business have difficulty kind of dismantling something that they, that they built. So that's that 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 can be tricky. So I guess in my case, um, Domino's has had the twenty odd years that I've been involved in. It's had a very strong progressive growth. I'm a significant shareholder in the business. I own 26 percent of the company, so I have, a, I, have a, I have a shareholder point of view, which 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 I'm interested in, and I'm also 
Uh, I'm also the chairman of this public company. Yeah. So it's how do you get balance between uh, how do we maximize the results? And in the case of Domino's, very interesting. You know, the number one thing when you've got the number of franchisees, you have to be conscious of the franchisees' ability to make money. And so if, if you get a downturn in the business and franchisee is not making money, sometimes you have to reassess them. The franchisor sometimes is in a difficult schizophrenic sort of position in that you got to try and maximize franchisees' profit, but at the same time, you got to have your own corporate profits that are also. So if you give some of your income back to the franchisees to make his business successful, is that coming out of yours? So there's a balancing act. The real fundamental answer to your question is the board and the management have to work together. And when they become two separate sort of, you know, hands off, you know, go for your life, then all of a sudden you get a wake up call if something goes wrong. I think you need closer kind of affiliation. And we that's a continuous thing that we try and work on to try and make sure the board and the management are in sync. Yeah, makes sense. Now, as you say, you've spent uh, most of your focus on synergistic businesses in, in food. Yeah. You've had some huge wins outside that as well. Channel 10, of course, uh, being one of them. And uh, the Sydney Harbour Bridge Climb being famously another one. And for those people in other states or overseas, we're talking about a business that enabled uh, tourists basically to go to the top of Sydney Harbour Bridge and and see it in 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 quite an extraordinary experience. That's a pretty radical business. Tell us how that eventuated. That that particular decision is probably contrary to what I've said as far as you know, kind of the principles as to how you invest and things like that. Uh, I'm in a business organization that had an international convention here in Sydney and one of the, and Nick Reiner was the chair, was the premier and we got permission for him to take these international visitors across the bridge. You know, mm-hmm. they all, what's the, what was the best part of your, of your holiday in Sydney? 12 out of 10, the bridge climb. We thought that was fantastic. Mm. So the guy that organized that particular event, his name was Paul Cave, he then went on a like a six or seven year mission to try and get permission from the government to allow this to become a commercial enterprise. Finally, uh, they got it, and uh, but they needed needed $6 million in order to buy the uniforms, fit things out, put the railings up and things like that. So um, Brett Lundy, who you may not know, and I put up the $6 million and the business launched and was, it was like 1998, I think it was, uh, and it was highly successful. Mm. Unfortunately, it may have been too successful because when the 20-year term came up for renewal, uh, the government put it out to tender. We put in what we thought was a reasonable increase on, on, on what it was. But people, is public information. They saw how much money we're making, and another organization gave what we thought was a silly price, but they got the deal. So our 20-year our term, as successful as it was, then stopped, and the new people took it on. Yeah. I guess the only redeeming thing that, that, that came out of that was COVID came shortly thereafter. And there were no bridge climbs, you know, for the next three years. And, you know, it would have been an expensive undertaking for them. Yeah, for but sure. We, we, we would have very much liked to have been able to stay in. And, and we were hoping 
it didn't happen that the government would give us a second bite of the cherry, which sometimes they do. But in this case, somebody put in a price which was so far above ours that I, I, it, I, we, we, we didn't fault the government because the numbers were so weighted in favor of this other group. Yeah. But, you know, once again, we see uh, extraordinary resilience on behalf of you as an investor in Paul Cave as, as the driver of this. You know, it was just a sentence that you said, but six or seven years trying to get this happening. I mean, how many times did you think, oh, this, this is never going to occur? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, he was on drip feed of, you know, people kind of keeping this thing alive. And uh, when after this, uh, you know, I think it was seven or eight years, uh, when they finally got the piece of paper that gave permission, to, no one really could quite believe it. And, uh, but the risk, you know, I, I said earlier, how, how do you see something and how do you get some evidence that, that it's going to work? In the case of Bridge Climb, other than other than that group that said, "Hey, this is a great experience," we didn't really have any kind of um, track record or anything that you could say, "Hey, this is sort of like this, and it should work." Mm. So that was that was that was probably as risky an investment that I made into the unknown because there was no kind of track record or any kind of evidence that this is going to work. And I remember, you know, having having written a substantial check to get it started, you know, you, you carry the fear that day two, somebody's going to jump off the top of the bridge and the government will shut you down. Yeah. Fortunately, that didn't happen. But, I mean, you carry that fear when, when you make an investment into something that you don't really know what the rules and kind of factors go into making it work. What's been your best investment in your view? Uh, well, Bridge, bridge Climb was, was, was very good in that uh, – I, I, I think the best investment we've made is probably the Hungry Jack's business. You know, we, we've got a business that, uh, again, started in Perth, we've got 450 outlets today. That is a combined business doing about $2 billion a year in revenue. And it's, it's very successful and it's growing. Mm. So I get when you say what's the, what's the most successful uh, that from starting with one store in, in Perth and being able to build that, having made the mistakes that I think we made along the way, kind of having survived that, and getting the, getting the management in place that have kind of carried this to new revenue and profit levels. We got a lot of money invested in that business, but if you look at the magnitude of, of what we do, that, that has been very successful. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the Domino's business Domino's business was good. Um, as I say, I I I became at one stage of the game. I owned eighty five percent of the business, and when it went public, I got diluted down to as I say in the twenties. So if you look at return on investment, that business being a franchise business got less money invested mm. from a shareholder point of view than what the Hungry Jacks has. But so it depends on what kind of measuring stick you want to use. The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. You got to live long enough. You know, if you live long enough, that was that was like fifty plus years ago. But if you live fifty, if you live fifty years, and you kind of compound your money at a certain rate, you know, you, you got a good chance of being successful. We're back here now in the Business Lounge with the king of fast food restaurants, Jack Coward. The Business Lounge. A lot of people looking outside may say, well, someone who's a multi-billionaire would live a pretty stress-free life as to their day-to-day business operations. But 
that may ne- not necessarily uh, be the case. Do you still experience much stress in, in business? I don't necessarily think I, I have a lot of stress in my life. I, I think I, I, you know, we've, we've had court cases. We've had things that, you know, kind of you say, well, I wish that hadn't taken place. You have lots of, you know, so you have moments in which stress obviously comes into it. Mm. I think my attitude has largely been you do your best that's all you can do, you know? And, uh, so I, uh, like I'm 81, not happy about that. I still think in my head, I'm 21, but I'm 81 still come to the office every day. And I come to the office because I enjoy it. I like the interaction with the people. Mm. Uh, I like the fact that we're doing things, we're investing money in, in some new ventures. Uh, and uh, you know, to me, the real secret of life is finding out what you're good at. You find out what you're good at, then how do you get into something that you enjoy? If you enjoy it, I have an expression when you can't tell the difference between work and play, you can't tell the difference between work and play, you're in the right place. Yeah. And I think in my case, I enjoy, I enjoy going to work. I enjoy it. So do things go wrong? Yes. You know, do things that you wish hadn't happened, happened? Yes. But it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really keep me awake at night. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Great attitude. I don't think I'm a great warrior. I don't think I'm a great warrior. Uh, and because I think my attitude is something goes wrong, fix it. You know, find out what the problem is and then fix it. Don't worry about it. And I, I say to people, the great disability in life are those people that worry about things they've got no control over. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got no control over it, don't worry about it. It will eventually run its race and something will happen. And if uh, if you got control of over over what the problem, then fix it. But don't worry about the things that you got no control over. Get on, do the best you can with what you got, and hopefully you'll have a happy ending. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So you got into franchising when it was hot a long a long time ago. Now, are there industries you know for people listening in that you think are uh, really the equivalent of franchising back then that? They're, you know, they're great ones to potentially get into. Yeah, I, you know, people say, oh, there aren't any great opportunities today. There are more opportunities today in business than there's ever been. I, last week, was in Singapore. Forbes magazine has a, has a conference for CEOs. And the big thing was AI, you know, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, where is this going? What's the impact that that's going to have? What are the spinoffs? And... I don't know if you had much to do with chat, GP, you know, it's, I mean, when you see some of these things and you say, okay, what are some of the spinoffs that's, that's going to do this? Uh, if people have more leisure time because they've got a machine doing something for you, where are the new opportunities? Let's get in the resort business. Let's get in the, uh, how, how are you going to entertain people? What do we, what, what, you know? So as the world changes, and I don't know what the numbers are, but the rate of change, I gather, continues to increase at great rates. So with every change, there are new, new things that happen mm. and new opportunities that come along. So I think you have to have your antenna up and, and be aware of what's, what's changing <coughs> and what do, we, what do we do to look for opportunities that you get into. We're in the plant-based meat business. You know, um, we're in the meat business. What's an extension of that is, is there's a certain segment of the population that wants to eat 10% of the population is vegetarian. So how do you, they're not meat eaters. So how do you produce a product that, that's going to make them happy? 
We got three or four different ventures, which are kind of related. So they change, continuous change. It will continue. And these days, what what motivates you? Is it is it just to have fun? Is it to push the boundaries? Uh, what's what's your main driver? My main driver, Simon, is to stay alive. Okay, you know, at my ripe old age, you know, my friends are dropping off the perch and things like this, and you say, hey. You know, how many years have I got? As, as I say in my head, I think I'm still 21. My body, <laughs> my body doesn't pick that. So, you know, you, you got to say, okay, what, what's what's the, I'll tell you what the great leveler is. The great leveler is your health. You know, I, I know people that into their 80s, into their 90s even, continuously work because they like doing it and they keep their brain active and, and the muscle, you know, things turning over in their head. Once your health goes, zero. You know, all that goes out the window. So that's the great leveler. How do you, how do you maintain your sense of health? To be? My, my wife criticized me that I don't do enough about it. But on the other hand, you know, it, I, I have a very clear understanding that if you don't have your health, nothing else matters. So you got you to somehow measure that and continue to do what you like. And they say, poor buggers that retire and wake up in the morning and say, you know, I got to play, they play golf three, four times a week. You got to somehow keep stimulated. It doesn't mean work, but there are other things you do. But how do you keep yourself stimulated so that the brain continues to be active? And uh, that to me is the challenge. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Jack, uh, priceless wisdom, very, very appreciative of, of your time and, you know, the, the wisdom that you've imparted today. Thank you so much for being here with us on The Business Lounge. Thank you. The Business Lounge, where business outsiders become insiders. Okay, so what did we learn? Well, just an awesome amount. Number one, I think, Learn how to sell. I mean, Jack's advice about that, it was crucial to him starting in business, both door-to-door selling and then selling investors on his concept. And it was a lot of money he raised uh, in anyone's language, uh, in dollars in those days. I mean, it was just a huge amount of money that he raised at age 25. How do you do that? Well, you've got to learn how to sell. And so many people in business avoid learning how to sell because it's tough and it involves confrontation. And it involves rejection. And, and Jack said it's just absolutely crucial. And one of the best skills he learned was learning how to sell. Aligned with that is the power of resilience. You know, we saw with the bridge climb investment, it took six to seven years to come through. But uh, Jack kept on putting, uh, you know, efficient amounts of money into that. Likewise, inside uh, the business of Hungry Jacks, although he didn't get in, into it in detail, there were a couple of moments that he had some legal problems with um, Burger King in the States where uh, there was an enormous amount at stake. Uh, he kept on with them legally, staying resilient with dominoes as well, plenty of ups and downs, stayed resilient and was victorious in, in both cases. Uh, next, invest synergistically. So the vast majority of his investments have been in, in companies or technologies that have helped the main thing that he's doing. So it's enhanced the profitability or it's enhanced the efficiency of businesses that are already making him a good profit. I think that's such a powerful 
idea rather than do what I've seen a lot of people do who are good at one business and then they invest in another completely different business and not do well. But by the same token, he stays open to the occasional times when a totally different industry is put to him. Its fundamentals are so good. The idea is so good and the people behind it are so good that he does invest in it. And he's done brilliantly. Channel 10 being a great example of that. And of course, Bridge Climb and many others. And then finally, look for businesses that they balance the two poles of you being good at that type of business or, or, you know, that type of uh, behavior that's needed in that business. And at the same time, you think you really enjoy it. As, and as he says, you know, the importance of enjoyment can't be underestimated. And above all this thinking, and arguably the most important piece of advice that Jack has given us today is that health is the great leveler. You know, the guy is bouncing around doing amazing things. And, you know, yes, he is also 81. And he realizes he's wise enough to realize that at the end of the day, even with, with billions of dollars, health is, is just absolutely crucial. So for every one of us who are growing our businesses, just keep that in mind. Don't put your business in front of your health. And uh, Jack's a great example of someone who's, who's smart enough not to do that. Wow, what a um, series of lessons we've got from an extraordinary entrepreneur and it's an absolute honour to have had Jack Cowan in the Business Lounge. The Business Lounge. Disrupt Radio. For the first time in Australian talk radio, advertisers like you can target and reach an affluent, influential and aspirational audience using just one platform. Disrupt Radio. That's because our entire content strategy and on-air program schedule is built around audiences first. And when you build around audiences, you build around advertisers. You'll reach a national audience of small business owners, entrepreneurs and startups, highly influential decision makers from the C-suite to owners, founders and more. Disrupt Radio, the ideal environment for your business. Offering premium content, premium audience, and premium advertising opportunities, like exclusive sponsorship of primetime programs, standard advertising packages, live reads, all within a contextual environment and a clutter-free listening experience. Disrupt Radio. The sound of Australian entrepreneurial spirit and a sound investment for your business. Tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. Hi, I'm Nick Brax, host of Soul Trader on Disrupt Radio. I've been interviewing people who have achieved huge things in life and uncovering how they keep it together and how they survive the struggle to success. You can listen to all of my podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or whichever podcast you prefer. Just search Nick Brax, Soul Trader. When you finish binging all of my shows, be sure to check out the rest of the Disrupt Podcast Library, The Business Lounge, The Next Shift, Global Disruptors, The Advisory Board, and Conscious Capital. Maybe you own a business or an entrepreneur or just simply want to improve yourself. Disrupt Podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio.